Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7, <clears throat> Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters. Today is August the 2nd, 2011. And uh, that means I'm 39 years old. It's my birthday today, and it's a Tuesday. And we are going to have a really great show today. I have James Stein with me, who is uh, a first responder and has done that in a variety of capacities, from working for the fire department to volunteer law enforcement uh, to currently serving as a paramedic for the city of Hot Springs. So uh, I'm going to bring him on in just a minute. He's going to talk about kind of an overview of prepping from a first responder standpoint. A lot of the things that when we're prepping for the end of the world, we leave out, like how to make sure 911 one can actually find you when someone you care about and love is falling on the floor with a heart attack or a stroke. Uh, and a lot of other really great things. I think after today's over, you're going to feel like, you know, like you go to a doctor and you haven't been really looking after your health and he goes through a checklist and he finds all the places that you need to kind of shore up, especially if you go to an enlightened doctor. That's how you're going to feel about your preps, I think, when we're done today. There's going to be a lot of stuff like, yeah, I need to take care of that and that's easy and that doesn't cost anything and why the hell haven't I done that? That's how you're going to feel when you're done with today's show, which is a great show. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take care of our sponsors, though, before I bring James on. Sponsor of the day number one today. MERS-radio.com. That's M-U-R-S, the dash, and then radio.com. MERS Radio is a unlicensed radio technology, which means anybody can use it. And you have five frequencies and five sub-frequencies each, so that's 25 total frequencies. You can expect to get a little bit more privacy than on a typical family radio frequency radios like you'd get from a sporting goods store because simply less people use them. You're looking at a range of about one to two miles, the secondary communications method. So this is not like ham. You're not going to be broadcasting to somebody on the other side of the world bouncing off a satellite here or anything. It's really for kind of homestead-level communications and security or security at a complex or a compound or in a company company or a warehouse environment or something like that. But what's really cool is it allows you to co combine that secondary communications with security by placing motion detectors at various locations, which will sound off across your radio or base station with alerts like Alert Sector 1, Alert Sector 2. So you know what's going on if you know someone is encroaching on your area, whether it's a dog trying to get out of the fence or someone trying to steal your stuff at night, you'll know what's going on. That's a good piece of information to have. If you couple that with something like remote uh, wireless camera security, Boy, you've really got something you can work with there. Uh, next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Whatever you're looking for when it comes to prepping, you'll find at Safe Castle. From long-term storage foods to gardening equipment to hunting equipment, you name it, they've got it at Safe Castle. And at their sister site, Safe Castle LLC, they also build some of the best hardened shelters you'll find anywhere in the world. So check out Safe Castle today. And remember, Safe Castle has an awesome program called their Discount Buyers Club. Now, if you are a member of the Safe Castle Discount Buyers Club, you get big discounts on just about everything they sell. To buy that, it costs you $29 one time, and you own the membership for the rest of your life. But if you join the member support brigade, remember you get that membership free. That pays for almost 30 bucks out of your $50 first year dues alone. So they're a great supporter and a great supplier. Next up today, 
Um, I want to remind you guys, I am running a special on the MSB this week, uh, 20% off any uh, membership term, but that is only because Stephen Harris is giving away, I say giving away, selling dirt cheap, his video, Bread from Gasoline, for only 5 bucks. It normally sells for $34.50. That is just for members of the Members Support Brigade, and it's only this week. And to get him to do it, I had to run an MSB sale to bring new people into the MSB uh, as well for him to be willing to do that kind of a quid pro quo thing. Doesn't happen that we do something like this often. Pretty much anything in the MSB is a long-term program, one-year minimum. But with a deal like that, $35 video for 5 bucks. I was willing to do it. So check that out. Remember to connect with me, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and the forum. Uh, also remember, if you're joining the Member Support Brigade, and if you are a law enforcement officer, uh, prior service, uh, or active duty, military prior service or active duty, or have served in the Peace Corps, um, you qualify for a service discount. Uh, that discount's actually a little bit better than the sale I'm running right now, so you may want to contact me by email before you join if you fall into that category, and I will send you the discount code for that. All right, folks, as I said during the introduction segment, uh, I'm fortunate to have with me kind of a first here. I've got James Stein, who I'll tell you about in just a second, but he's here sitting next to me today uh, to do a, an interview and uh, talk about uh, preparedness from a standpoint of a first responder and, and what he's learned from that. James is an interesting guy. He's a local to the area, first of all. That's why he's sitting uh, right next to me, so it was cool that he was able to come in to do this. Uh, but he is a prior service reserve police officer. Uh, he served in the United States Air Force. He was also a member member of the fire, fire department, and he's currently a paramedic, so uh, he's seen kind of all the sides of response that we can, and he put together this document. I don't think we're even going to cover the whole thing. Maybe he'll let us uh, release it to you guys uh, at, the, at the end of the show, because it's just awesome, the material he's put together. And James, hey, welcome to the Survival Podcast, and welcome to uh, the, uh, the Ant Hill. Thanks. I appreciate you letting me come in. So I, I did tell people kind of a little bit about your background there, but you know maybe you, you want to elaborate a little bit on it and how you've kind of gotten to a point where, like you were telling me earlier, like preparedness is part of what you've always done, but you're, you're kind of seeing it in a new light and using your experiences to kind of come up with some new ways to look at it. Sure. Uh, been, I guess, interested in fire department was the beginning of it since uh, 1980, 1981, and uh, been in several different roles and positions through both uh, volunteer and full-time fire departments, and I used that experience to cross-train over into law enforcement and emergency medical services, and it just sort of seemed a natural thing to be prepared for emergencies because that's what we always saw every day is people in general just were not prepared. They basically just go through life and don't have a clue of what's going on around them and find themselves in bad positions and we have to come take care of them. Understood. And I, I think that maybe, I, I've always said this, that we need to prepare first for the things that just affect us and or our next door neighbor. And, and, and those are the things that happen every day. And I think most people that have never done your kind of line of work before would be shocked at how much goes on every day that's an emergency for somebody. Yeah, people get caught in uh, situations where they're basically unaware of what's going on around them. And as an example of this, you can go sit in your local emergency room and you'll see people that have accidents that could have easily been avoided by either paying attention or not being in that situation, which if they were paying attention, they would have thought better of being in that situation to begin with. Yeah, you know, and I've always talked about, like, commonality of disaster and normalcy bias, and I've always talked about how 
the less people affected, uh, the more likely you are to have a disaster and, and kind of a, the probability factors. But what you've done is kind of broke it down more into, well, what is the impact scale? And what I've got here in your document is you come up with like minor, larger, and major events, a green, yellow, red code type thing. That makes a hell of a lot more sense, by the way, than Homeland Security's orange or fuchsia or whatever the threat <laughs> level is today. But in, it, I like the term you use there, it's disruption of normalcy. So, you know, we're going along and then something screws that up for us. So let's talk about kind of minor events, like a green event that, you know, happens every day. But what, what kind of things happen that just kind of throw things off for people? Okay. The disruption of normalcy, I mean, we're not talking a Katrina-level disaster every day of the week. It could be something as simple as you go to the sink and turn the water faucet on and nothing happens. Uh, it could be several different causes that lead to that, but the end situation is you're still left with no water. So if you've thought ahead of time and prepared, you'll have a little bit of water. Maybe you're in a rush and don't have time to fix the problem right then. If you just need to brush your teeth, grab a gallon of water off the shelf, you're good to go. But, I mean, these can come from all different kinds of reasons. Uh, Bubba with a backhoe is a, a misnomer <laughs> that I like to use because it could be somebody dug up a back line, a back a water line, sorry, uh, dug up a fiber optic line and cut the phones, uh, water main break. Uh, could be storm damage if you had storms come through, a uh, lightning strike could have caused a technological problem somewhere, could have been a local transformer station, whatever. I mean, all these things happen every day. Uh, and like you said, the smaller scale of event, the more frequent they happen. Yeah, you know, when we were on our way back from Florida about a month ago, we were going through this place somewhere in southern Arkansas, and I thought this area had some remote areas, but down there in the south and some of the farmlands, boy, you were in the middle of nowhere. We found this little podunk town that actually had a hotel, and we were tired of driving, decided to stay there for the night, and they had a boil water advisory because the power had been out, and their water treatment was dependent on the grid. And, you know, you go into your hotel room and it says basically don't drink the water. Now, fortunately, we always carry water with us and all, and... Uh, fortunately, we carried beer because you can't buy beer on Sunday in this place, and it was a Sunday. Uh, but, I mean, stuff like that happens all the time. And the stuff with the backhoe, we actually had a term for it when I was in the telecommunications industry when we had systems down because we called it backhoe fade. Now, when somebody makes up a term like that, that tells you there is a relative uh, frequency of occurrence <laughs> there. So those types of things, and I think that what people don't get is like, if, especially folks that are more in a rural area, generally they're a little more prepared, but if power's out and there's like 50 of you past the place where the power's out on one side of things and there's 7,000 people in town on the other side with power out, the people in town come first and you might be there a little bit longer. But they are kind of minor events at that point. Then you move up to what you call a yellow event, a larger level event. What, what are we talking about there? Uh, this would be like the, the tornadoes that came through a little while back. Uh, Last year, year before, we had some uh, tropical storms that came through. We had power out for a week, two weeks, things like that, depending on where you were. It's more than just your normal day or two events, but you're not up to the major level events of the Japan earthquake or Katrina or Mount St. Helens, things like that. It's sort of a mid-range. Absolutely. And, I mean, we just had that right here, the tornado that went across Highway 7 between the office and my house that went down through that valley down there. We had... Uh, uh, we had people up on our side, I think we were out power for like four or five days, but the people in that valley, they went like 14 days without power. Right. And that's that's a significant difference than being inconvenienced for a day. 
And when it's the summer out, it's 110 degrees. It can actually be a life-threatening situation if you don't have some means of passive cooling. So even though it's short in comparison to something like a Katrina, it's still something you need to be prepared for. And then we move on to those red-level events. What, 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 what kind of pushes something over to be a red-level event? Um, in my mind, it, I mean, it doesn't have a definite thing of if it's so many days or whatever, but it's going to be something that involves the entire region uh, Katrina definitely would be in that uh, category. Uh, the earthquakes, like we talked about, it doesn't have to be World War III, nuclear strike, whatever, that's going to end the world, but you know that your infrastructure is going to be disrupted for a considerable amount of time, and you'll have to be at least self-sufficient or find other means for your daily life. And, there's, and for some, it's total loss. Like <clears throat> It makes me think of the two... It's, I almost hate saying two, because it was multiple big, bad tornadic events this year, but the two that kind of stick in people's mind are Birmingham and Joplin, and, and the parts of those towns are gone. The people have lost everything that they had, and that's a point where preparedness in the community helps out, because even if you're well-prepared in your home, if your home is blown up, unless you had some stuff stored underground or something like that, you could be without anything, and you mentioned like World War Three. well, I drove through Birmingham, and it looked like World War Three. It looked like somebody set a nuclear bomb off. You see the pictures, but when you're actually there and you stand and you look at houses that have been turned into toothpicks, it really drives home how bad things can be when it's not you know the end of the world as we know it. But boy, for those folks, it really is. Right, and look at, like you said, looking at these scenes and pictures just does not do it justice. You walk up in the middle of where a tornado has gone through, or standing in the middle of a flood and there's nothing as far as you can see except damage and destruction. It's utterly amazing that things are still standing or you're still alive or whatever the case may be. That uh, what you think, wow, what are we going to do now? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'll tell you that I think that like the kind of the line between the yellow and the red depends on where you're standing because like we had that uh, ice storm two years ago that went, it, like it stretched from Texas to Pittsburgh at one time. It was this huge swath of pink. But the people who got hit were like up in Kentucky. And some of those people went 14 days without power. All right, some of them went, and I have one guy email me, they went 23 days before they got restored. Now, it was sub-zero temperatures at night. So that's that's a red-level event, at least for that individual family. So I get where you say there's no clear line of delineation. But what I like about what you've put together is a lot of it is more about what you do rather than what you store, right? Because you can only do so much with stuff, and right. you can lose stuff, right? So you kind of have this like checklist to, to, to how to think and what to do when it just happened. You just had the flood, the earthquake, the fire, the tornado, the explosion, the pandemic. It, whatever it was, it just happened. And what do you need to do right when that, you know, you've, you've come to realization, the disaster's here? Uh, first thing you need to do is ensure your safety and, of course, your families and immediate others may be around you. Uh, a lot of times we have next-door neighbors that we check on frequently or have a good relationship with. And after you make sure everybody's safe as far as life threats, then you want to check the safety of your surroundings. <clears throat> uh, if you're home, school, office, wherever you may be, make sure that you don't have a gas leak or make sure that you don't have power lines down on the building or different things like that. Uh, I was responding in a flood a few years back and this was the day after the floodwaters had gone down. We were helping people remove things from their houses 
and nobody knew that the power had been restored. Mm-hmm. And I was helping a guy move a refrigerator, and we both got shocked fairly well. And we weren't touching anything live, but down the way, a power line had fallen on a house, and it had backfed through all the wet ground. Got you. Yeah, that's something you don't think about, I guess, because you, you think, oh, it's out. I can't get electrocuted, but maybe it's not out. And maybe the people that turned it on didn't know where all of the things were, you know. Sometimes that's how they figure out where other brakes are is by bringing the system back up. Right. And after you make sure that you and your surroundings in the immediate area are safe, you want to remove anything that is a life threat or move people in a life-threatening situation somewhere safely. Uh, of course, always you want to provide first aid, call for help, and if there's no communications available, then things kind of take a different turn. And in that situation, and again, I don't think I think sometimes people in the survival mindset think, okay, when nine one one doesn't work, that means that it is the end of the world as we know it. But there's a lot of these emergencies. I mean, like Katrina, you weren't picking up, even if your phone would have worked. Calling nine one one wasn't going to happen, or wasn't going to get you help very quickly. Right, and when you call 911, if you're not properly prepared, it could mean the difference in life and death. You've got to have a preparedness mindset ahead of time by going out and getting first aid training, CPR training, know how to stop bleeding, know how to properly move somebody if they're injured so you don't paralyze them, Uh, learn different things as far as how to shut off your gas, how to shut off your electricity at home, uh, maybe you're gone to work and your teenage kids are there at home by themselves. Make sure they know what to do. It's not just you yourself. I mean, you've got to communicate this to your family as well. Do you think it makes sense then maybe to document all this stuff? Because even if you said, honey, look, this is how you throw the main breaker. This is how you switch the gas off. When somebody's panicking, if they're not real familiar with it, it's easy to kind of get, you know, panicked and just think, I, I can't do this. Right. And in certain situations having to fumble through a document may or may not be the right thing to do uh, what we've got at home is our water shutoff valve is red mm-hmm. for the house so they know go to the red valve turn that off gotcha and they know where the electrical shutoff is for the whole house uh, doing fire inspections in the past I've seen on the outside of industrial buildings where they had a wrench actually chained to the uh, natural gas shut off so they knew that they had a means and they knew where it was absolutely absolutely well that makes a lot of sense but i mean you could be in a situation where you got to do more than that i mean it's kind of the way you put it here is kind of an all hands on deck situation because equipment and help is not coming or it's going to get there eventually but it's not going to be there for a while sure uh 911 is not an infinite system i mean there's only so many phone lines that go to it and there's only so many operators working that can handle phone calls and if the operators are tied up because of something stupid how are the roads or can you tell me what time it is i mean whatever the case may be and yeah these calls really do happen to 911 operators yeah you were telling it, me about people calling because they got their wrong order at a restaurant or something like that yeah i mean it, it's stupid stuff that we wouldn't think about but People just don't know what to do, don't know how to handle their daily lives, and they're not self-sufficient by any means, and they know 911 is the emergency number to call, so if there's a problem, they call that. Sometimes it's a legitimate emergency. Uh, A lot of times it's not, and it could have been handled by other means. 
Like if if McDonald's is out of McNuggets, I shouldn't call nine one one because I'm pissed off about it. Unless you're in an altercation with the manager, no. <laughs> I, and that really that that really happened. That's one of the things you looked up. Yes. It actually happened. Some some numbskull dialed nine one one because McDonald's didn't have McNuggets and he wanted his McNuggets. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what nine one not not what nine one one's for. Um, it, it, some of the reasons, I mean, you're going to call like you have in your document, medical conditions, trauma, falls, lacerations, cr- uh, crush injuries, entrapment, auto accidents, fires, any, anything where somebody's life is at stake and they need, they need help. But in addition to that, like part of preparedness is to understand that, yes, 911 is an option in a lot of situations, but when you make that phone call, they're going to come out there and try to find you and figure out where you're at to help you. So there's some things that you have here that we should do before the emergency happens so that we can help the first responder be able to respond, right? Sure. Uh, When you call 911, you say, help me, my house is on fire, and you hang up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that doesn't help us, other than we know there's somewhere there's a house on fire. So, thankfully, through Enhanced 911, we hopefully have an address on the screen that we can use. Now, that may or may not be wrong. Uh, you can call in ahead of time when there's no emergency. Call your local center ahead of time. Say you would like to do an address verification for 911. And then they tell you yes, no, give you instructions, and you call back. That way they can confirm that what the software has actually does show your address. And how do cell phones affect that, though? That's that's a totally different world, isn't it? Uh, amazingly different. You can be standing in a room. You can call on a landline and get one call center. You can pick up a cell phone, and you can get one in the next county. Mm-hmm. And that happens here locally a lot. Uh, another thing that is absolutely imperative is mark your address and mark it where we can see it. Uh, the best thing is find out where your responders are coming from. Ideally, you can mark both sides of the uh, mailbox post or street sign, whatever, with your address. Make sure it's a contrasting color. Make sure that we can see it from the road. If your house is well back off the road, covered by trees or whatever, make sure you've got your address posted at the road. Our local ordinance calls for three-inch numbers near the front of a residence, but, uh, like I said, if your house is half mile off the road, like what mine is, there's no way they're going to see that. So I've got mine on my mailbox post from both directions in reflective letters. And then you got to know kind of what to expect from your local jurisdiction, right? Right. Uh, whenever you call with an emergency, we're trying to get to your house as fast as we can. And you know where your house is. You go there all the time. You may not have the capacity to give us directions by proper landmarks or street names or something like that. Maybe it's somebody visiting you and they don't know where they're at. But uh, having your address marked is first. The jurisdictions that come out, depending on if you're in a fringe area, may be from different counties. If uh, you're close to the county line, your neighboring county may respond if the car that's in that local area is tied up for a law enforcement emergency or a lot of times in overlapping areas, you'll get two fire departments to cover on an automatic or mutual aid agreement. So it may not be your closest one that gets there first, but there are plans that are in place to make sure that everybody gets adequate coverage. 
Well, and you know, one of the things that frustrates me is what I call being directionally impaired and unable to read a map, draw a map, or give directions. So I loved it when I saw this line in your document. Do you know where you live and how to get there? And I think most right. people don't be like, of course I know where I live and how to get there. Yeah, but do you really know, if you know something, you can tell someone else and they'll understand you. Right. My daughter is 15. She's just learning how to drive. And she knows places, but she doesn't know street names. She doesn't know Grand or Central or Main Street or anything like that. She says, I'm going to Walmart. Okay, which one? Oh, uh, uh, hmm, I don't know. The one out there by <laughs> close to the bigger building. So, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> turn left at the tree. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you need to actually know your street names and if it's a certain area, township, or whatever, so you can call. Uh, sometimes technology does get in our way. Uh, one of the calls that I'm aware of where this happened was there was a computer switching glitch in the 911 system, and we got a call here locally for Little Rock. Oh. And uh, it was for a street where we had the same street name, and... Mm. Uh, we were supposed to be going to number 18, and instead the street here in our town is 100, 200 series numbers, and we ended up having quite a delay before they figured out that the call had gotten transferred incorrectly. So I think maybe that that's something that people can do, because you never know when that's going to happen. If you state where you are uh, during that 911 call, if that's going on, at least, you know, because what happens is the caller assumes this must be Little Rock 911, or this must be Seattle 911, or this must be Jacksonville 911. And I guess also, in a, a lot of times, you know, the few times I've had to do it, they usually state the 911 operator makes the statement, but the panic caller doesn't even hear that. Right. They just they just like start going. So saying where you're at during that call would probably help prevent some confusion. Sure. Uh, the first thing that we're supposed to do as a 911 operator is find out what is your location. And you'll say 123 Main Street. Well, is that Main Street in Hot Springs or Main Street in Mountain Pine? I mean, mm -hmm. we cover all these jurisdictions. It doesn't help to throw in just a little bit of extra information there. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that people even like, especially like you live kind of an off the beaten path and so do I, if there's a main road that people are familiar with and you have kind of that side street that comes off of it, there's usually two main ways to come down that main road, from the north to south or the east and the west, whatever it is. And knowing when you come off, like let's say, main, you know, primary route one to, to that, that the secondary cross street, how far each direction is to the left that goes to your house or the right that goes to your house, and being able to say, once you get on you know XYZ Street, it's about three quarters of a mile to this road, make a left. So, that, I mean, right. sometimes we, we think that, like, our responders are, like, super equipped, like G.I. Joe or whatever, and they're able to just find you wherever you're at. But when it comes right down to it, especially as you get further and further, further out of the city grid, uh, where everything's in a straight line and, and numbered and lettered, it gets more and more complex to find people. Sure. Uh, especially if you're in a rural area, uh, working in the rural areas in the past where I have, uh, we actually did get directions like go to where the old barn burnt down and go left down that road to <laughs> where Aunt Minnie's cow got hit. And, I mean, it sounds funny and comical, but these actually do happen. So you need to have a physical location, landmark, some kind of commonality that everybody will know. Uh, the 911 systems have made leaps and bounds as far as getting actual addresses placed, but 
they're still not marked or sometimes there's a difference in road names whether it's a county road or an actual proper road name and I also think you might be calling someone other than not if you can't get through to nine one one you might be you or you might eventually get in touch with somebody by another means if you're a ham operator maybe it's that way or what have you so you you can't necessarily you know be sure that even when you get to help that they're going to have access to all of their resources so I mean you're making me think of something right now that I've never thought of before but I I, I would say that if you live anything off the beaten path. You should probably have written directions with a magnet on your refrigerator. So uh, if the kids are home alone and they have to do this, they can just read it and have you know from general. Like I said, there's maybe two ways to come into any location. And if you had that both there, uh, that that because again, I, I think that people don't they underestimate the, uh, the 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 things that happen to you from an adrenaline standpoint. Uh, from a panic standpoint, when somebody you love is laying on the ground clutching their chest. So anything you can have that can kind of center you and help you do what you need to do, I think would be helpful. But what I'd like you to talk to uh, talk about now a little bit is you, you've been doing this from every line of work, as a law enforcement officer, as a fireman, as a paramedic, and we talk about disasters that happen every day. What are the biggest medical emergencies that you've seen day after day after day and had to respond to? What we see locally, uh, of course, our population here being a retirement area is probably around 70 or so, but we do cardiac problems, uh, respiratory problems, strokes, seizures, falls, car wrecks. Uh, Over the last couple of years, we've had a huge spike in the number of calls for altered mental status uh, from psychiatric patients. Uh, they may be having an altered mental status from diabetes or alcohol abuse, whatever. I mean, these are the daily things that we see when we go to the office. Okay, I know want to have this call, this call, this call, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I want your thoughts on this. One of the things I've been asked a lot about is if we ever have a long-term emergency, some of these people that are on psychotropic drugs for mental illness what happens when there's 20 or 30 of them in your neighborhood that can't get their Xanax or their, you know, uh, what, what's the other stuff, Prozac or whatever it is? And I'm, I'm sure you've gotten these altered mental status calls for people that they just chose to go off their meds or they, for whatever reason, aren't on them. And I guess that would be a real risk if it wasn't because they chose, but because they're just not available. Right. Uh, it's like people on blood pressure medicine. They take their medicine for forever. Their blood pressure is normal, so they stop taking their medicine. They don't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason it's normal is because their medicine's working. <laughs> Same way with the psychiatric patients. They stop taking their medications because they're fine. They're not having any problems. Well, that's because the medication was working. And then they'll be off of it for a week or two weeks, and then they've got this huge up-and-down situation where we get law enforcement involved, ambulance involved, and sometimes fire department, depending on what's going on. And it just really snowballs into a big situation from something that could be a very simple fix. Yeah, yeah. And then with all these medical emergencies, I think we have people, and I've told this story before, I'll do it again here, just because it's, it's so relevant to when we start talking about having the ability to respond with first aid and, and medical training. I have this friend um, that looked me up after I started doing the show. I went to high school with him. Uh, he got an F in high school bio. He had to take a different science course to graduate. I mean, so this guy is as little training as you can possibly get or a little understanding as anatomy as you can possibly get. Well, he's all into this survival thing now, you know, and he, he sent me this link to this website where he bought 
a uh, medical army field trauma hospital kit. So it's like this backpack. It's like $800 <laughs> worth of crud that like, if you gave it to a doctor, he could probably perform surgery in the field with. But my response to him was, what the hell are you going to do with that? You, you flunked high school bio, and, and now you think you're, you're a doctor because you have the tools. And you can hand me a, a, a handsaw and a hammer and some nails and some screwdrivers and a, and a wood plane, and I can make a basic cabinet. But I'm not going to be able to build you a house with it. A, a guy that knows framing and carpentry can. So just because I have the tools doesn't mean I can actually perform the trade. And when it comes to working on a human body, it's even more critical because if you mess a board up, you throw it away and get another board. If you mess a person up, you can't throw grandma away and get a new grandma. So, But but there are basic things we can all have in our, our mental toolkit as a skill set and some basic supplies so we can at least hold on until first responder gets there. So what are the things people should learn and what are the pe- things people should have for these medical emergencies? Uh, first and foremost, you want to be able to prolong somebody's life if they're having a life-threatening problem. So you've got to know CPR. And this also covers emergency procedures for if somebody is choking or first aid and bleeding control. Uh, if you hit a major, major artery, you can bleed out in just a very short period of time. So know how to control bleeding, uh, all your regular first aid stuff for bumps, scrapes, cuts, whatever. And, of course, burns comes into that. Uh, a serious burn will have to go to a burn center, which we've only got one here in the state. So you need to be able to properly treat those so the delay in transport doesn't exacerbate that problem. Uh, Somebody falls or gets hit with a flying board in a tornado or whatever happens, uh, you need to know how to handle broken bones. Uh, Splinting and bandaging is important. Uh, People have seizures. They're very scary to watch, especially if it's the first time you've been exposed to one. But unless it's a prolonged seizure where they're actually not breathing for several minutes most of the time they'll run their course but you need to protect the patient during that time uh, don't stick anything in their mouth they're not going to swallow their tongue don't stick <laughs> say that again say that again <laughs> don't stick anything in their mouth they will not swallow their tongue thank you <laughs> <laughs> unless you've got some type of physical abnormality your tongue is attached it's going to stay right where it's at you know, I've always said to people when they say, well, let's swallow their tongue, I'm like, why don't you do me a favor? Swallow your tongue for me right now. You know, and they're like, what? Just go ahead. See if you can get it to go in at all. And it's like, well, if you can't do it on purpose, it's probably not going to happen on accident. Yeah, it's very true. And then what about seeking kind of a higher level of training? Are there certain things out there that people can do without making a career change? Sure. Um all this basic level training that we are just talking about, you can get that through several different outlets. Uh, first thing that comes to mind with most people is going to be the Red Cross. They're absolutely wonderful about that. The first CPR course I ever took was through the Red Cross. Uh, you can go to, uh, here we've got a local community college where you can get training for uh, EMT level. Uh, you can get first responder training a lot of times through industrial sites. Uh, you may be able to get it through some other uh outlet through maybe a fire department or something like that that's sponsoring a course. An EMT is not <clears throat> real, real expensive to do, and it's not like going to med school or something like that where you're going to spend the rest of your life before you get out the other side of it. It's something a civilian can realistically take and then you know maybe use as a volunteer here or there as well. Sure. Uh, EMT course is roughly uh, six months long. Of course, it depends on where you go, how they're 
courses set up uh, through the State Fire Academy here. They've got a five-week class, but it's an intensive all-day, every-day class running like eight to five. Okay. Where if you go through the community college, it's like two nights a week for a few hours. Sure. Uh, you do some ride time. You do some uh, time in the ER. And if you want to go after that and get your actual uh, national registry certification, you've got written and practical testing that goes with that. But there's a lot of people that go through the EMT course that are basically just looking for extra information that don't want to actually do full-time ambulance jobs or fire department or something like that. Sure, sure. And uh, I wanted to ask you about something, and this isn't in your doc, but as you're talking about all this stuff, it's something that's been bugging me. For about the last couple weeks, uh, I've been hearing this commercial on the local AM radio station here about hands-only CPR. And it just bugs me. I, I don't. It's like the commercials. Like, if an adult collapses, I guess if a child collapses, the heck with the child. But if an adult collapses, um, call nine one one and then push hard and fast on their chest until help arrives. Um, are you familiar with this thing? I mean, I've just the first time I've ever heard about it, it's on the radio. And I'm also thinking if I collapse and my heart hasn't stopped, I really hope somebody that that heard that is not pushing hard and fast on my chest. Um, what's the deal with that thing? The Heart Association reevaluates their CPR training roughly every five years. Okay. Uh, and it used to be deliver four emergency breaths and then start your compressions. And then it was one rate if you're by yourself or a different rate mm-hmm. of compressions if you had two people. Fifteen and, and two and right. stuff like that, yeah. And they revamped that, and their latest revision is a lot of the lay public is not adequately performing the rescue breaths, and they've also found that the oxygen levels circulating in the blood, since the body's not actually actively using oxygen, is still adequate enough that they don't have to do the breaths, and that was holding a lot of people back. They didn't want to what we call suck face with a stranger. Sure, sure. Uh, they might have cooties. You don't know. Yeah. So they're push right now is just do the chest compressions and don't worry about the ventilations. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sold completely yet, but I get the point at least, and you're right. If you're not using a lot of oxygen, there's quite a bit there. Uh, I don't, but it, I, like I took CPR training, and it's more work than you think it is, and I, I don't know how hard and fast and how long that's going to last for the guy you know, doing it maybe needs it for himself, but uh, I get the point, right? So let's talk about some other emergencies, real, real common one, utility emergencies. And you kind of said this already. We have to know where to shut everything off. Um, and, but what are some of the things that maybe cause utility emergencies that people don't really think of? They, they think it's always Bubba with tobacco, but there's other stuff right. that does this besides lightning, wind, and Bubba. Uh, well, other than natural causes, the... I mean, there could be a spike in the power grid for whatever reason. Uh, it got hot and one of the transformers blew and it threw a spike. And now you've got an electrical surge in your house and you've got smoke coming out of your outlets. First thing you need to do is shut off your electricity. So know where your shutoffs are for your power. Know where your shutoffs are for your water. Uh, if you've got natural gas or propane, know where that is and how to shut it off. Uh, we don't have a lot here, but... Uh, Areas in the northeast have heating oil. Uh, make sure you know how to contain your heating oil source and what to do if there's a leak. Uh, we're kind of on the fringe here of the New Madrid fault zone, and it's not an everyday thought, but 
earthquake preparedness is something that we also need to be ready for, especially if it is the big one that they're talking about. And you're going to have fires from broken gas lines, and those firefighting efforts are going to be hampered by broken water mains. That's where you get the huge conflagrations that cover several blocks or entire cities. And along with knowing where your shutoffs are for your utilities, make sure you've got the necessary tools available. Uh, like we were talking earlier, the uh, wrench for the natural gas shutoff. It was painted red. The shutoff location was painted red. I mean, it's super simple in an emergency when you're not thinking straight. Able to go up, give it a tab time. a slot B red item to red red bolt. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> like one of the things I see in your document uh, for after effects is gas buildup. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. Uh, if you've got a broken gas line, uh, natural gas is lighter than air, so it's going to rise to the higher parts of your house or building. Where propane is heavier than air, and it's going to sink down into the basement. It'll be along the floor lines, things like that. You want to be able to know what you've got so you deal with it properly. Opening up your windows on the top floor if you have a propane leak is not going to be the correct way to deal with that. Uh, other problems that you can deal with uh, if you're in flooded areas or flood-prone areas, uh, don't store your valuables in your basement. I mean, that's a common sense thing, but... But most people do. Yeah. They put that, it's a basement. It's where you put storage. Right. <clears throat> if uh, storm damage or tree falls on your house or whatever uh, maybe it lands on the car that's in your garage and now you have a gasoline spill inside your garage you need to know how to take care of that properly venting your gasoline fumes and of course the gasoline proper needs to be uh, taken up with some spill absorbent gotcha and we got to worry about you were talking earlier about down power lines and you know <coughs> just because they're down doesn't mean they're off right uh, the system has a lot of automaticity built into it, and it'll try about three different times to reconnect the circuit. And you don't know when this is going to happen. There's no kind of warning signs or anything like that. The power line can be down. Uh, say, for instance, a car hit the pole and the line's down on the ground. There's nothing going on now, but that's not to say that the system doesn't send a jolt down the line and it doesn't get energized here in just a few seconds. So treat all down power lines like they are live because they may be. So we got to treat power lines like a gun. It's always loaded even if I just unloaded it because even though there ain't no power coming out of it now, two seconds later it may be uh, pushing you know a couple hundred thousand volts through my chest and I only need a few to uh, shut the heart down. Um, then the next one I see mentioned, and I think people underestimate this one, if I took all the people every year that got electrocuted by lightning, crushed by a tree, killed by a tornado, hit in the head with hailstone and killed, and, and all the weather stuff together and put that number in one place. And then I took all the other people that were killed or injured in flooding. The flooding victims would outweigh everybody else put together. So flooding is a danger, and it's one people sometimes just kind of walk willingly into because they underestimate it. Right. Uh, water is heavy, and it's also forceful when it's moving. And... Depending on the type of vehicle you're in, it may be as little as six inches of water to sweep your car off the road. And you can get your feet swept out from under you if you're trying to cross in uh, rapid currents. The street may not be there anymore. It may be washed out. There may be a huge sinkhole. If the area is flooded, simply don't go there. And 
there's news accounts all the time of people that went around barricades and ended up getting killed or injured. Absolutely. I remember, I was talking to a friend of mine about this. By the way, the same guy that bought the uh, field hospital backpack, and uh, he was saying he didn't believe six inches of water would do that. I asked him why not, and he said, well, because we go fishing, and this is a friend from Pennsylvania at the Susquehanna River all the time, and I'm standing in that water up to my waist, and it's running full tilt bore, and I'm like, dude, you just don't understand how it works. When you compress water into a given area, the pressure goes up, and you can see this real easy. You turn your garden hose, and the water just kind of comes out. You put your thumb over the end of it, it shoots through the air. That six inches of water is being compressed, say, going on a road crossing into a narrow passage, so it's moving faster, and it's exerting greater force. So six inches of water moving at five miles an hour is very different than six inches of water moving at 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, which some of these flows can get up to. Right. Uh, again, you don't know how deep the water is because it's an optical illusion when you pull up to the edge of a flooded area. The barricades are there for your safety. Trust them. Don't just blindly go into a flooded area. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, if you go around a barricade, you pretty much invade your own bed. You're going to be lying in it and... Hopefully it won't have a top that will close one day on you. Anyway, let's let's move on to structure fires. That's another thing that people uh, deal with a lot. Uh, structure fires are another one of those daily occurrences that we deal with. Uh, they're absolutely more dangerous than what you would appear from watching them on the news or things like that. It's not the fire that kills people. It's the smoke. The furnishings that are in buildings today is... 90% plus synthetic. It puts off toxic fumes. It burns at a super high temperature. One breath of this stuff in a building will kill you. And you may think, oh, it's just a little bit of smoke. Well, the smoke may not be that dark, but the toxic fumes may be colorless and odorless, but they're still just as deadly. Absolutely. And I mean, I thought the government was trying to help us and fix us and everything's going to be safer, but you have down that today uh, house fires burn hotter and faster uh, than they than they did in the past. Right. Uh, children's clothing, for instance, has to be flame retardant and beddings and things like that. They're flame retardant, but that does not mean that they won't burn. And when they burn, they are toxic. Uh the styrofoam that's in one coffee cup is more than enough to kill you when that's burned. Mm. Mm. Now, what about, like, if my house is on fire, should I be trying to put it out myself? The only time you should fight a fire is if you are absolutely certain that there is no danger to you. Uh, firefighters receive specialized training and equipment just for this reason. Uh, it's a dangerous, it's dark, it's toxic environment, and it's not the place that ordinary lay citizens need to be if there's a way to get out of it. So, I mean, that should be the, the priority then, to get out. And you have to hear that you, a lot of times you have less than two minutes. And that, that minute and a half you spend looking for the uh, fire extinguisher might be the last minute and a half you spend doing anything. Right. Uh, watching burn house studies on videos, they've timed them. Uh, Christmas trees, for example, are a lot more dangerous than people give them credit for. But an ordinary room and contents fire from the time you have the first flames on a couch from a dropped cigarette or whatever until that room is fully involved, you've got less than two minutes. And 
you need to stay low because the superheated gases are going to rise toward the ceiling, and that's also where your clearer and cooler air is going to be. You want to stay low to the ground and get out. And you got to have procedure in place in advance as well, get mom, dad, the kids, the dog back together. Right. Uh, you want to have fire exit drills just like you do at school. You want to have those at home. I know it sounds corny to a lot of people, but you need to know in an emergency what to do. And you can't just run around willy-nilly in the middle of the night trying to find Billy and Betty and everybody else. You need to know where to go, what to do, and where you're going to meet. And that way everybody can be accounted for, and we don't spend time looking for someone who's perfectly safe. Right. Uh, that's one of the fears working in the fire department that I always had is you roll up on a house fire at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they say, somebody's in there. Well, we go in, and if a fireman gets hurt looking for them, and then they realize later on they're at the next-door neighbor's house because nobody did a check to see who was in, who was out. We got a fireman hurt for no reason. Sure, and I guess once you get out of your house, don't decide, oh, I can't <clears throat> live without something and go back and try to get it. Right, and again, this goes back to the specialized gear and training that the firefighters have. They're protected. They can go in. They can put the fire out if it's something that you absolutely cannot live without and they're not overwhelmed with fighting the fire. You may find somebody that's able to get Aunt Minnie's picture off the wall and bring to you or bring your chest full of jewels or whatever you've got. But you do not want to go back in once you get out. I also tell you fireboxes are cheap. If it's that important to you, put it in a firebox. You can get a big one for about, I'd say about 60, 70 bucks. And we have a couple of them. And things like important documents and pictures we don't want to lose and stuff like that, they go in there. And that way, I just don't have to even think about that if that's going on. You also have some information about thinking about fire and probably other emergencies when you're in a hotel. That same hotel I talked about where the water had a boil water advisory, it had all these guys from the you know, linemen from the electric company out there working, and they were all staying in this hotel probably because it was the only hotel that was there. Um, but all these guys were standing out front smoking because it was a non-smoking hotel. Well, there was no real ashtray. There was this little pot uh, with a like a cedar tree in it sitting out there with a bunch of cedar mulch. And uh, they were putting their freaking cigarettes in the flower pot. So I went out to get something out of the truck, and I come back in, and the flower pot is on fire. So, I mean, you, you, you kind of have some stuff here about that, too. That you, you don't really know what kind of stupid things your neighbor might be doing if you're in a hotel <laughs> or an apartment, like putting right. lit cigarettes into dried cedar mulch. That's... That's about as dumb as it gets. Sure. Uh, apartment buildings, condos, whatever. You ha may have immaculate housekeeping. You may not smoke. You may have fire extinguishers in every room. But what does your neighbor do? We don't know if they keep their trash piled in the corner and dump their ashtray in it or if they don't clean their stove and they've got grease accumulated on it. I mean, you may do everything right but you can still be put in a situation due to somebody else's actions. Absolutely, absolutely. But you also have on here another big threat <clears throat> being wildfire. We had a fire up at our place. I think you kind of know the area that I'm in. That's down there off of, uh, well, we won't say, but it's down that <laughs> way. Uh, but we had a fire up there about two years ago, and uh, fortunately one of the neighbors runs an excavating company, and had a bulldozer, before anybody even got there, he started pushing brakes in, and then the fire department got there, and they were able to contain it. And, and I don't think it would have got us anyway. It was 
the wind was taking it toward a neighbor's house up on a ridge behind us. But, I mean, that pine forest went up like a match. And you've got to have a plan for that because that's literally a potential fire storm coming at you. Right. We're not in the real dangerous situations here like what we see with the Santa Ana winds in California or the swamp fires in Florida, things like that. But we still have a huge amount of woodlands here. And a lot of it is pine. There's several pine plantations around. And when it's hot and dry like this, that pine resin is just amazingly flammable. And it will go before you have any idea that anything is going on. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some things people need to do to kind of be uh, prepared for that or maybe need to think about if they're in a, a, a you know, like kind of a situation where they do have to worry about this? As a, as a, go ahead. First of all, with everything else, you need to have a plan. I mean, you can't just go through life expecting life to happen around you. You need to have a heads-up approach, and you know that if this is going to happen, you need to do this. So if you're living in one of these areas that we call the wildland urban interface, which is where most people live nowadays since they moved out of the city into the country, their house is relatively close to woods. You want to have a defensible space around your property for about 30 to 50 feet. This is where you keep your lawn, yard, whatever you want to call it down here. We have grass. Uh, you want to keep it mowed short. Uh, the less amount of fuel that you've got there, the better it's going to be. You want to avoid accumulations of dead grass and leaves. Uh, fall time, when the leaves come, they blow up next to the house. That's a perfect tender box for our fall fire season to set somebody's house on fire. Uh, another thing that you want to watch for is what we call ladder fuels, where your taller grasses will lead the fire onto low-hanging branches, which can go right on up to shrubs to nearby trees that you have for your nice shade trees next to your house. Somewhere in there you need to eliminate that pathway so you don't have just a perfect stair step for the fire to get from the woods into your residence. Uh, you want to have an escape route and you want to have an alternate. Uh, anytime you live in a place where there's only one way in and one way out, you're in a bad situation. Uh, just as hard as you're trying to get out, the fire department's going to be trying to get in. So you want to be mindful of fire apparatus. Uh, narrow roads, if they're covered with smoke, it may be in the nighttime. Visibility is going to be poor. Again, you need to have a heads up and expect the unexpected. Uh, you may have a truck with a bulldozer coming down the road that's not big enough for you and him both. So just be mindful of the situation you're in and try to think outside the box. You want to make sure that you've got access in. Uh, if you've got a bridge or low-hanging limbs in your driveway, things like that, make sure that there is proper access for larger vehicles to get in. Uh, gated communities are popular around here. Uh, sometimes there's a special access code. Sometimes there's a key box. Make sure that there is some way for the emergency responders to get in. Uh, if you need to bring it up with your property owners association or whatever, uh, it's a bad situation if you've got a house on fire and you can't get in just because of the gate. And, I mean... There's some other things just in general people need to be aware of, like you have down here, um, stuff with tornadoes and getting underground, knowing this, you know, weather watch, a weather warning, those types of things. Right. And, again, it's when you watch the 
TV weather stations, whenever the bad storms out, outbreak comes in, they'll tell you get in the lowest area of your house, get in the center room, place as many walls between you and the outside as you can. These are things that actually work and you need to pay attention to. Ideally, when there's a tornado coming, the best place to be is underground. If you've got a storm shelter or a basement or something like that, that's where you need to be. But you need to not be caught unaware. So you need to have a weather radio or you need to pay attention to the weather forecast. If they say that it's going to be storms moving in, uh, particularly dangerous situation forecast, things like that, they mean it. And you need to pay attention to it and be prepared. And we live fairly close to the school where our kids go. And I've listened to the school administrators talk and they have the weather radios and they do keep a heads up on the weather coming in which I was really surprised and pleased at but not all of them do so you can't always put your safekeeping in somebody else's hands you have to be aware of what's going on you know and I think that we need to be aware of that but we also need to realize that sometimes things sneak up and get us and there's no warning or no watch or anything. It was just a few weeks ago that young lady was killed down in Hot Springs where she was sitting in her car and some garden variety everyday thunderstorms came in. I've always got my weather radio on at the house. I didn't hear anything about it. Nothing came on the TV. There was no warning. One high wind, I think it was, pushed that tree over, and it, it landed on her vehicle. Now, for her, there's probably nothing she could have done. There is a certain amount of fate in the world. I always say I could be on the way to work tomorrow and get hit with a gravel truck. And if I do, then that's just the way that it is. But what the lesson to take away from there so that this young lady's life is not completely in vain is that just because the TV doesn't say something's coming doesn't mean there's nothing at all to worry about. And still try, when you start to see lightning, thunder, wind, at least realize there could always be something deadly there. Right. Uh, if you're outdoors, uh, summertime, everybody is out there going to the golf course or horseback riding or whatever. If you can hear thunder, then you're probably close enough to be in potential danger. So start heading indoors. Don't get near a large tree because the higher the object is, that's where the lightning is going to strike. If you are the tallest object out in a wide open area like a golf course or you're holding a graphite fishing rod, I mean, <laughs> that makes you the tallest object and you don't want to be a target for a lightning strike. I completely agree with that. All right, well, I mean, we've covered so many things that can go wrong, and, I, and I'm going to have to have you back on, uh, James, because some of the stuff that you have in this document I just think are awesome and things that people overlook, and they're just, you know, the typical uh, things that we have to deal with all the time. Uh, so definitely we'll have you back on, and like I said, hopefully we make this document available to people. But um, let's talk a little bit about the stuff to have on and the skills that you need uh, to have. Uh, so just kind of taking a new look at our preps, a slightly different look, what are some of the things people need to make sure they have? Uh, first of all, you need to be able to maintain yourself during a short amount of time when you've got no utilities, no food, whatever. So a bug-out bag or a, your 72-hour emergency kit that everybody's telling you to have in place, this needs to have food and water uh if your house gets blown away, uh, some type of shelter would be handy. If you can't get to a neighbor's house or something like that, a uh, small tent or something like that, you can gather all this stuff up and put it into a bag or box or kit or something like that and keep it in your vehicle. 
you don't want to have all your eggs in one basket if like you said earlier your house gets blown away you've lost everything you've got because you stored it in your house you might want to have two or three different locations to keep your supplies in I'll add to that. I think with the bug out bag, it, you need to have one, and maybe there's some redundancy, and maybe some things you don't make redundant. But one for every member of the family. I talked to a guy one time. I'm like, so you got a 72 hour kid? He goes, yeah, we're, we're squared away for 72 hours. I said, with food too. He goes, yeah. I said, well, how many kids you got? He goes, one. I said, and so you, you got a wife? He goes, yeah. So there's three of you. He goes, yeah. I said, how many bug out bags do you have? He said, one. I said, well, unless it's really full of food, you don't have a 72 hour kit. You have a 24-hour kit because everybody's got to eat. So right. at least with food, clothing, things like that, even kids could have their own kind of miniaturized version. Right. And you say 72-hour kit. Don't think of it as, okay, we're only going to go 72 hours. Sure. Think of it as a minimum of 72 hours. We're going to get through at least this far and then plan for the future from there. Uh, around your home, you want to have fire extinguishers for the correct type for their placement. Uh, there's different types of fire department or fire extinguisher chemicals. Uh, it may not be suitable for a grease fire or a trash fire or whatever. Make sure you've got the right type of extinguisher. Also, keep a fire extinguisher in your car. It may not be you that needs it. You may pull up on an accident where there's already a fire, and you may be able to help. Uh, take care of your first aid supplies, any necessary medicines that you're on. Uh, if you can get a 30-, 60-, 90-day supply of your medicine, that's also a good idea. Uh, I put down for a concealed carry, I don't plan on shooting first in all situations. You want to be able to escalate the level of force and reduce your liability. Uh, you want to also have some options there. Uh, you may not be a martial artist or a hand-to-hand combat expert. Uh, be able to make use of everyday items for weapons, whether it's a magazine, pens, keys, whatever. Uh, pepper spray is a great thing I think a lot of people should be able to carry uh, it might not be a rapist but it might be a mean dog that you're dealing with uh, absolutely and it's a better conversation with your neighbor man your dog got out of rate and I sprayed it with pepper spray then dude here's your dog full of 9mm holes that <laughs> that ruins relationships <laughs> sure um, if uh, you're caught in a bad situation and you get held up for money or wallet or something like that Carry a little bit of cash on you, uh, five or six ones wrapped around with a ten. Be able to throw that down. Uh, have change for the phone if you can find a pay phone somewhere. I know they're disappearing rapidly. Uh, maybe a backup cell phone that you keep in your car, one of these just pay by time as you go. Uh, you want to keep uh, something that you can cut with, a knife or a multi-tool. Uh, if you can find the EMT shears, uh, they're awesome. They'll cut through leather. They'll cut through lightweight, lightweight metal. Uh, they'll get you in and out of a lot of situations that uh, ordinary scissors won't be able to do that. And protective clothing, you want to protect your eyes, your gloves, to protect your hands from uh, hot things, cold things, uh, boots, hard hat, I mean, different things like that. Uh, you also want to have a basic toolkit available with hammer, pliers, screwdrivers, uh, crescent wrench or pipe wrench, maybe bolt cutters. Uh, you never know what kind of situation you're going to be dealing with after a tornado or flood or uh, the neighbor's car runs through your house or whatever it may be. 
And then I, I, I think that's a, a great list of things to have on hand and a great way to think. But I think the way you think and what you know how to do is even more important. You have down here skills are more important than stuff. Right. Uh, the things that you gather up in preparedness for everyday life can be taken away. Uh, you can be robbed or it can be lost when your house is wiped away by a tornado. But if you've got the skills and the knowledge, that can't be taken away by somebody else. Uh, if you know what to do and how to handle situations properly, then you'll be heads and shoulders above the rest. And some of the great ways to get these skills ahead of time is by joining a CERT team or taking their training. A CERT is C-E-R-T for the Community Emergency Response Team. It's a volunteer program that FEMA put together, and it's an excellent way to wrap all this into a neat bundle. It's about a 40-hour long course. Uh, you can check with your local emergency management agency. Uh, you sign up, and the ones that we've done here locally, they've got different speakers come in to handle the specific topics. They'll do uh, a session for fire protection, a session for emergency medical, and then they cover the first aid and all the different basic things. It's not as intensive as a strict EMT class or strict industrial fire brigade, something like that. But it's a good way to handle emergency skills all wrapped up in one little bundle. And then volunteering as a volunteer <coughs> fire department uh, person, that, that can be very useful as well. Right. Uh, over 70% of the firefighters in the United States are volunteers. Uh, it's the backbone of most communities. Uh, the municipalities have their firefighters, but once you get outside the city limits or incorporated limits, whatever, a lot of times it's a volunteer department that handles everything. And I can almost guarantee you that everywhere you go, they're going to say that they need people. It's an excellent way to get in, get your foot in the door, to get this training, a lot of times it's either free or at a greatly reduced rate. And an added advantage to that is once you're in the system, you can get an insider's viewpoint to local or regional events because you'll have the advantages of communications and the interdepartmental intelligence that goes along with that. That's just awesome. And I'll tell you what, I think we're going to about wrap up here, but... Uh, You've got a lot more. Uh, I think I'd like to make this material available to everybody. I think I'd like to have you back on to keep going through it. And I bet you everybody out there just feels like, you know, every once in a while you go to the doctor and it's not because my toe hurts or my neck hurts or uh, I, I ate something that didn't agree with me. Sometimes you just go to the doctor and say, Doc, check me out. And I bet you everybody out there today feels like they just had their preps checked out really, really thoroughly <laughs> and found that there's a lot of places. I mean, even people that are be, like really, really prepared for the long-term grid-down scenario tend to overlook a lot of the things uh, like making sure 911 can find your house. They, people think OPSEC and I don't want to be found at all. And there's a time and place for everything. Uh, but when, you're, when your wife or your husband or your, your, your grandmother or your dad is laying on the floor clutching their chest, holding on the last bits of their life, that's not one of those times. And when your house is on fire or about to be on fire, that's not one of those times. So I think maybe you've really helped people kind of take a new look at the way they're thinking. And hopefully we can take that and we can marry that with, yes, the preparedness for the long-term scenarios and bring those things together in a cohesive way. So, hey, thanks for being on the show and really thanks for coming into the office. Like I said, you're the first person that's ever done that. 
Thank you. Again, I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and to speak to everybody and hope I was able to give some good pointers out. Well, you definitely were. And with that, today this has been Jack Spierko along with James Stein, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Revolution is